Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest is uh, Andrew Ripple. He's an associate professor. He's the uh, Peter B. Moyle and California Trout Endowed Chair, part of the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation at uh, University of California, Davis. We're going to talk about uh, his work with um, freshwater biodiversity and uh, fish ecology. So, Andrew, thanks for coming. Great to be here. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your background and what got you interested in uh, water and fish ecology. Sure, yeah. I, um, I'm from Wisconsin originally, and um, like a lot of kids that grow up in Wisconsin, got really into fishing and vacationing in the Northwoods when I was a young boy, and um, also uh, read a lot when I was a kid um, and got exposed to Sand County Almanac I'm from Aldo Leopold. Just really enjoyed books, really enjoyed nature. Um, kind of developed uh, a love for the land that um, has stayed with me my whole life. And, um, you know, when I went to graduate school, I thought, um, you know, I would probably study fish and go work for a state agency, like a, like a Department of Natural Resources kind of job. And um, when I was in graduate school, I, I learned that I was quite good at science and really enjoyed asking questions and, and learning new things and um, just sort of developed a knack for studying nature, studying freshwater ecosystems to be more specific, um, fishes, and that sort of propelled me on a, um, a scientific journey. So what, what's your current research about right now? Yeah, so I'm a, um, a fish ecologist and I work in California and California has a really unique uh, endemic uh, fish fauna. Um, so what, what that means is we have um, a number of species, there's roughly 100, depending on how you count them, that are native to California. And the vast majority of those species are, are endemic. Um, so they only occur in California. They're, they're Californians through and through. And as you might uh, suspect, uh, we have a lot of people in California. There's about 40 million humans living on the landscape. Um, huge economy. It's like the fifth the largest economy in the world. And so that places a lot of pressure on, on water, um, which in its 
essence is fish habitat. Um, so I work a lot on um, conservation issues, um, native California fish fauna, particular focus on things like salmon, anadromous salmon, Pacific salmon that have a, a very complicated life cycle, but very interesting life cycle, and trying to find solutions to help uh, conserve and manage uh, these declining uh, freshwater species in the in the face of human impacts. So well, trying to find are, um, yeah, what are some of the species and and where do they live and what's been happening to uh, to hurt them? Well, I mean the um, the Pacific salmon are probably the the one that most people uh, think about uh, the most. Of course, there's things like the Delta smelt that are in the news um, quite a bit. That's a kind of a native just a smelt species in the San Francisco estuary. It's on the precipice of extinction. But if if you just take um, Pacific salmon as a, as a good example, um, a heuristic example, um, you know they have this this complicated life cycle. They live as adults in the ocean and they spawn in um, natal freshwater rivers, oftentimes way up in the landscape. You know historically at least they run into these uh, clear cold um, snow melt streams in the Sierra Mountains, spawn in in reds or or um, spawning beds. And then the, the juvenile smolts would start traveling down the mountains and then onto the, the Central Valley floor. Um, I live in Davis, so Davis is in the Central Valley. A lot of agriculture in the Central Valley now. Back in the day, you know, hundreds of years ago, uh, and of course before then, the Central Valley was a huge uh, wetland, basic giant floodplain. Uh, it was full of tule plants. Um, there were indigenous tribes that, that lived there. Abundant fish and wildlife. Um, and those those smolts or juveniles that were traveling out to the ocean would spread out over that that landscape and rear. They'd, they'd feed on all the insects and small crustaceans and zooplankton that would develop in these um, wetland habitats and kind of gas up um, and then keep making their way out to the out to the ocean. Now, if you fast forward in time to to today, most of that habitat's gone. Most of the natal streams are passage to those those natal streams is blocked by dams um, that we use to store water um, so that humans can can have more reliable um, stores of water. Um, And most of that Central Valley wetland habitat is converted um, either to cities or to agricultural fields. So uh, some of our work tries to think about how we can creatively use some of those habitats for the betterment of, of fish, to help fish. Um, while also helping people at the same time. Okay, so what, what's happening to the Pacific salmon population? Are they spawning elsewhere or are they literally just unable to function because they're, you know, part of their journey is now cut off from them? Yeah, so it, it, it really depends. So if you just look at uh, Chinook salmon, which is one species of, of Pacific salmon, there are actually four different varieties of Chinook salmon that are native to California. And they name them by the, the season at which the adults return to fresh water. So there's fall run, um, late fall run, winter run, and spring run Chinook salmon. In two of those cases, so winter run Chinook salmon and spring run Chinook salmon, those varieties of salmon have, have declined to the point that they're now listed under the Endangered Species Act. Um, so if you just take winter run Chinook salmon as one example, they used to have adult returns in the Sacramento River that, you know, might be anywhere between 150,000 spawning adults and 200,000 spawning, 200, spawning adults. Now we're 
lucky if we get 10,000. Um, and there are, there have certainly been years where they've had just within the hundreds. And most of this is because uh, of, well, lots of these sort of um, death by, by a thousand cut kind of impacts. But um, with a lot of the salmon species, the dams have really impeded the access to, to the natal habitat. Um, so for species that really rely, uh, for salmon varieties that really rely on access to those cold water mountain streams, they've been really hurt by, by dams and by, by limiting access. So um, we wind up trying to manage uh, the cold water that we do have access to, to, to keep these varieties of, of Chinook salmon around. So in the case of winter run Chinook salmon, um, there's a huge uh, reservoir on the Sacramento River called Shasta Reservoir. I'm one of the largest dams and reservoirs in California. And it, it will develop cold water at the bottom of, of the lake, essentially, behind the dam. And so what managers will do is they'll, they'll release the cold water from the lake to try to benefit um, winter run Chinook salmon, but on the valley floor, these are, these are salmon that are meant to go way up into the mountains and we're, we're using dams to try to keep them around the best we can. Um, so it's real complicated, but um, you know, we've got two of the four runs of Chinook salmon that are really on the ropes, kind of on the, you know, in real danger of, of going extinct. Um, and then fall run Chinook salmon are the, um, the run that have, been considered to be the most stable in California for some time. Um, so is, but there, it, is there a way to, um, I don't know, allow a timeshare use? Of, can the dams be turned off at all? Or can the fish be transported or, I don't know, herded into uh, some area of liquid and then literally transported into the area before the dam, hang out there and then released? Is there anything that can be yeah. done to use the current uh, structure? Yes. Yeah, so the, um, what you're kind of talking about there is a, a form of management that's that's called trap and haul. Um, and that's a, that's a way of managing salmon that um, is used in some other states. So um, that's, they, they do some of this on the Columbia River in Washington, other places kind of around the world. It, it can work, but it, it tends to be very expensive. And there, there's some hesitancy to um, pulling the trigger on that way of, of managing salmon in California um, because it, it may divert attention away from some other um, management activities that also could work. So it's a real kind of political um, kind of way of managing salmon. And, but I think that there, there is interest in that and you may see um, some actions along those lines, maybe even the very, yeah, but if you wait, every, I mean, so, yeah. so what happened, why did the salmon reduce in population because they literally just can't breed is that, or are there are other factors that go into the reduction. So it, it really depends on the, um, the situation. But so if we just look at the, the winter run Chinook salmon, um, what makes that, that variety of salmon unique is that, well, first of all, they're, the adults run into the system a little bit later, you know, in the winter time. But the juveniles or the smolts that are, you know, make their way out to the ocean with winter run Chinook salmon, those smolts historically spent the entire summer in the rivers, in the freshwater environment. Um, and that's, that's part of what makes that, that species of salmon unique. So salmon are very much a cold water fish. So if you have, it gets hot in the Central Valley in the summer. If you don't have cold water in that river, the juveniles will die. So in, in the case of winter run, it's really trying to conserve enough cold water to, to keep the juveniles alive in any given year. And without, without cold water in the river, 
all, all the juveniles of that run would die. But that's just winter run. So for other runs, it's a different kind of thing. So like with spring run Chinook salmon, uh, their life history is is unique as well, but in a different way. So in their case, the the adults come back. Um, they they run in the springtime into the freshwater environment, and the adults, um, as they come into the freshwater environment, are actually immature. They come in as sexually immature fish, and then they'll oversummer as adults in the river. And so historically, these salmon would run very high up into the landscape into like plunge pools up in the mountains um, that would be inaccessible to get any farther during the summertime. But then as the winter rains would come, uh, barriers for them to get even further in the landscape would become easier than they'd get above those barriers. Um, and so they, they have this, um, you know, kind of an inverse of the winter run a situation where the, the adults over summer. And so for them, it's really about fish passage into these high elevation streams. Um, so you can see how dams kind of really affect the, the passability of these different types of salmon to different locations. Okay. Um, and so what are some of the strategies that are being proposed that would help and how? Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Well, um... I'll give you an example of something we're doing that I think is really exciting. So if you look at all of these, these runs of salmon, again, kind of thinking back to the way the, the Central Valley used to look and it was a big floodplain, all of that's gone. However, we're, we're doing work with rice farmers in the Central Valley. And so a lot of people don't know, but um, California makes a lot of, farms a lot of rice. It's a very high quality type of rice, sushi rice. Every piece of sushi rice in the U.S. comes from the Central Valley in California. And there's about 500,000 acres of, of rice fields. Now, these, these habitats aren't perfect floodplain habitats like salmon might have experienced way back when. However, they might be useful for rearing salmon now if we can think creatively about it. There's some really interesting examples from the waterfowl science and bird management sphere that, that we're drawing from. Um, so for example, in the, in the nineties, the Pacific flyway, all these migratory birds that, you know, live in Alaska um, during the summer, and then they'll come down in the Sacramento Valley and over winter. A lot of those bird species were in decline. And one of the reasons they were in decline was there wasn't enough habitat, wetland habitat for them in the, in the overwintering areas in the, in the Sacramento Valley. And um, some really smart people got together at that time, and they, they figured out that if they could flood these rice fields in the wintertime, when the farmers weren't using those habitats, they could provide habitat for 
for these migratory birds that, that wasn't there before. And so they, they worked with um, the USDA and uh, an arm of the USDA called NRCS, which is an arm of, of the Department of Ag that basically pays farmers to do conservation activities. Um, and they, they've got a program on the books that would pay rice farmers to flood their fields in the winter when they weren't farming rice and provide habitat for, for migratory birds. And uh, that almost single-handedly arrested the decline of, of these bird populations. And it's one of the, in my opinion, one of the great conservation success stories in American history. So a lot of people have been looking at the success of that program and saying, well, hey, if you can do that for birds, why can't you do that for fish? And uh, that's exactly what we're working on. So we're trying to create uh, a parallel program to the NRCS bird program, but for for fish, native fishes, and targeted specifically at at native salmon. And so we've done some work showing, uh, looking at, you know, if you put just hatchery salmon out on these winter flooded rice fields, do they survive? Do they grow? If they do, what are they eating? And lo and behold, we find that they they grow quite quite well, and and they survive at quite high rates. And um, you know, we're doing some tracking of fish now of of salmon that we rear in these in these rice field habitats, and then compare their outmigration survivorship to the ocean through some tagging technologies. Um, and it looks like they might even have higher outmigration survival. And all of this is, in a nutshell, mimicking the the natural ecosystem that these species evolved in. Um, so it's kind of a nature-based solution. And um, it's it's a really interesting project because it is an example of how fish and farms don't have to be pitted against each other. So in California, it's kind of an old, old I don't know. I, I would say a trope at this point that that it's fish versus farms and that you can't have both. It's a zero sum game. And in reality, the future might actually be in a collaboration. Um, so if we can find ways to make existing infrastructure and existing um, agricultural needs and human needs more wildlife friendly, more fish friendly, this is how we can have our cake and eat it too. Um, so I, I just think that's a really, yeah, go ahead. Is there any way to get the various farms in on it where somehow they will, I mean, I don't know what they would do. I don't know if they have spare capacity in terms of space on the farm where they could house something that would maybe temporarily act as a, a way station for the fish, but they can move on from there to somewhere else. Or, you know, can the farms themselves somehow help instead of hurt? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what we want to do. So what we, what we want to do is create a payment structure um, that's going to incentivize the farmers to take up this practice and and say, yes, we will flood our our fields during the winter time when we're not using them. And we'll do we'll make maybe ditches in the fields and we'll we'll put in a, a special kind of board that will allow uh, juvenile salmon to pass in and out of the fields volitionally, like kind of when they want to. And, and essentially enlarge the, the footprint of habitat that's available to juvenile salmon. Um, it's it's kind of confusing to, to, to talk through if you're you know, not used to thinking about how water's managed in the, in the Central Valley and stuff. But a lot of these rice farms, they occur in areas inside of the levee. So in, inside of the Sacramento River, there are large areas that they set aside to allow floods to naturally occur. And those floods occur in the wintertime. 
um, but not in the summertime because it doesn't rain in California in the summertime. <laughs> so in the summertime, um, they, they grow rice in these um, naturally flooded areas. Um, and then in the wintertime, they're, they're, not, they're not utilized. And so all we're saying is, hey, let's think about how we use, if there's a smarter way to use these um, acres in the wintertime to allow salmon to come onto these fields uh, naturally on floods, rear as they would have um, hundreds of years ago, hundreds of thousands of years ago, and gain that, that ecological benefits um, that, you know, to this point, we haven't been allowing them to do. We've been constraining these fish to the main channel of rivers. And, you know, that's a problem because there's not that much food in the main channel of rivers and it's full of predators. So they get eaten um, more easily there. Um, so these are habitats that are going to be, are going to look and function similarly to those natural wetland habitats that they might have experienced a long time ago, um, even though they're, they're not natural fully anymore. I don't know. Are there any great ideas that you're seeing out there that would, you know, help with these various populations of fish to at least keep them going? I mean, uh, is there some sort of fish farming that can be done where we can make a proxy of the different environments they need to be in without disturbing the, you know, the rivers on the ocean side? Is there anything that could be done where you have a, uh, I don't know, again, yeah, catchments well, or basements set up? Yeah, I mean, so it's a combination of a lot of things. It's a, it's a tough landscape to do conservation work in because, again, 40 million people. Um, so that puts a lot of pressure on the amount of land that's there. And, and it basically makes it impossible to turn back the clock. You know, it's, it's not a good idea to think about um, conservation in that sort of a way. And I, I think that this is a, a lesson for the world in a lot of ways. California is often a, a forerunner um, on, on various issues. Um, but as our, our global population increases, I mean, we're, we're 7.8 billion people in the world right now, but that's set to go to 9.2 billion people by the year 2050. Isn't that far from now, 30 years from now? We, we have to learn how to have less of an impact on ecosystems, but the people aren't going to, you know, self-deport. We have to, we have to learn how to make our infrastructure more environmentally sensitive. So a lot of this is stuff that we, we need to figure out. We need to figure out how to, um, again, use, use the agricultural lands, which is a large fraction of the lands that are available um, in the U.S., um, use them in a more um, environmentally sound way. We need to uh, incorporate new technologies as they come available. You know, we were talking about trap and haul a little bit earlier. There's um, different technologies that might be more, more effective and um, less engineered um, to pass fish around large structures like dams. You know, we, the, the hardest part is um, doing the kind of, you know, down in the weeds habitat work that needs to be done to improve waterways for, for fish and lots of other species. Um, so a lot of this involves working with landowners, working with um, NGOs or non-government government organizations, uh, working with agencies that are responsible for, for managing these resources. And of course, like developing science, you know, using science as a tool um, to, to provide um, some answers or some direction about what what options are going to work better or worse than others. Um, so these are kind of slow, methodical, com complex solutions can really only be developed in that sort of way. So, I mean, the good news is we have the tools. The bad news is 
it takes time and a lot of effort to to carry that out and to figure out solutions to these problems. And I have lots of other you know projects I've worked on that you know we can go through examples of how this kind of kind of stuff works. But um, yeah, it's a it's a slow grind in a lot of ways. Yeah, understood. Well, very good, um, Andrew. We're just about out of time. What's the best place for people to find out more about your work and maybe to see an example of um, you know one of the efforts you're working on? Yeah, well, you can um, go to my my research lab's website. You can just Google Ripple Lab, and you'll find uh, my website that way. I'm also on Twitter, um, so you can look at my Twitter. It's at Andrew Ripple, and there's probably other ways to catch me on email, <laughs> other things like that. If you're if you're interested, but um, yeah, we we do do a lot of work. We work with a lot of um, interesting species, interesting ecosystems. You know, uh, California is a fascinating place to to be a fish biologist and to do conservation work. So I, I, I feel like we push the envelope on a lot of, you know, science-based solutions that, that actually have a chance of, of working. Um, so yeah, contact me if you're interested. Okay, very good. And for listeners, uh, Ripple is spelled R-Y-P-E-L, just in case they put in, you know, the other form of Ripple. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's yeah. an old po- Polish name. Very cool. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.